Good morning, everybody. What a privilege to be here with you for this uh, last week of our Or in August sermon series. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Sarah Seabrook, and I am on the staff team here at HTC. Um, and we are going to just dive into today's passage right now and, and yeah, get our feet in there. So we will be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 18. It's going to come up on the screen. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Wow, the summer holidays are already over and schools are finally going back. My husband David and I have three primary school-aged daughters, and over the summer, I've noticed that everything we have planned for our children to be involved in was subconsciously trying to meet some unspoken, acceptable children's activities checkbox. As we planned out the weeks, I was internally scoring anything we got them involved with such as, if it was educational, I got 10 points. If it was cultural, nine points. If it was adventurous, nine points. Memory making, eight points. Relationship building, seven points. Developing a physical skill, seven points. Developing anything else that could be believed to be a skill at a stretch, for example, clown camp, six points. Uh, encouraging self-play and sibling rivalry problem-solving, five points. Keeping them out of trouble and out of our offices, three points. Watching copious amounts of Disney movies, negative 10 points. We did manage to stay in the positive scores for the first five weeks of the break, but as of late, our go-to was pretty much those last two lifesavers which got us in the position of watching Johnny Depp play Willy Wonka in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory last week. For those of you who have never watched this film, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that the first half of the movie is about getting hold of the much-coveted golden ticket. Children and adults from every nationality, every socioeconomic background, every age and stage, they were all determined to get hold of one of these golden tickets that would give them access to the paradise of Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And as I watched, I found myself relating to something that I had believed for the longest time as a young Christian. The unintentional idea that our salvation is frozen 
into one earnest prayer spoken at a moment of deep spiritual conviction and clarity and that when we give our lives to Jesus, when we repent of our sin, when we recognize our true hopelessness and our broken state, and we ask him to forgive us and wash us clean and reestablish a relationship with God the Father, then the work of salvation is done. In this passage, Paul is challenging this common but limited perspective. Yes, by God's grace, we do have a moment of clarifying truth that we come face to face with when we confront our sinfulness and the magnitude of our need for God and his forgiveness and the stark recognition of the cost that that was, that he paid when he died for us. But then many of us get up off of our knees and we continue life as per usual. If we're honest, for many of us, the only lasting impact of that moment is the assurance that when we die, we will be welcomed into heaven because we have our Jesus ticket. Something like the golden ticket from Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Chocolate factory. So this idea that Paul is raising here of continuing to work out your salvation. It feels quite unnerving. Is it not already worked out? Look, here's my ticket, John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave Jesus to die for us. What he's saying here is that we need to work out the implications of our salvation in our day-to-day -day lives. We are still by the Spirit to put to death that mindset of the body, the sinful patterns that we keep falling into. But how? In verse chapter 12, in verse 12, Paul commands us to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Now fear, this isn't the fear that we have when we think that somebody is stalking us when we walk down a dark, deserted alleyway, or the fear that we might experience in the pit of our stomachs when we notice a strange lump under our arm. Rather, this is the awe-filled reverence of the all-powerful God exactly the fear that Rory referenced a couple of weeks ago. According to Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The only way that we stay rooted in this awe-filled fear is by continually looking for God in our day-to-day -day lives. Having the eyes to see him all around, whether it be in nature, or in acts of kindness that we see, or if we regularly take time to reflect on him and what we are grateful for, and particularly when we spend time in his word and in worship. The Psalms, they're overflowing with awe. And then this trembling that he refers to actually made me think of a Pilates class that I attended when we lived in Houston. 
It was a really out-of-this-world exercise experience, this class. There were, the, there were machines, um, there were special socks that didn't slip, there were cables, there were all kinds of equipment that I felt I really might have needed a degree to actually operate. I somehow managed to get onto the equipment and was about 10 minutes into this class when we were doing an exercise that made my leg begin to tremble. <laughs> it was like it was having a mini seizure. It wasn't painful, but it was shaking so much that I was sure I was failing hopelessly at this class. And I looked over in panic at the instructor. She caught my eye and grinning like only the people who are watching others work out and not doing it themselves can do. And in the best American cheerleader voice I've ever heard, she said, embrace the shake, embrace the shake. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it turns out that in many exercise classes, the sign of hitting the muscle work sweet spot is exactly that tremble, that shake, that muscle-building tremor that fitness junkies crave, because it means that some pretty amazing deep work is being done. Now, I doubt that Paul had the Pilates torture machine in mind when he penned these words, but we know that he was very familiar with hard physical work and its many benefits. In multiple instances in his letters, he talks about the strenuous work of being a focused athlete, and he was very familiar with partnering with God's work in human lives in ways that were uncomfortable, were disruptive, were exhausting, to the point of trembling. Helpfully, Paul, just before these verses, had just given us the example of someone who did this really well. This was the way of Jesus. In fact, at the start of verse 12, he wants us to look back at Jesus as our model. The passage that we just read starts with the words, therefore. And something we are often reminded of when we read the Bible is that whenever we see a therefore, we look and ask what it is there for. So we look back over the preceding verses, verse five to 11 of chapter two, and this is the model that Paul wants us to copy. It says there, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do we think that took any fear and trembling on his part? His path to the cross was motivated by holy, awe-filled fear of God and resulted in a downward journal of struggle 
and working and left him exhausted and depleted. His humbling journey is the ultimate example of this command. But then we read in verse 9 to 11, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And here is the beautiful mystery that God wants to work alongside us as we continue to work out our salvation, both in awe and reverence, as well as with very center of our core shaking work, that he will work in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. And what is that purpose? If you were here last week or got to listen to Ed's talk, he spoke of our need that is deeper than even we ourselves realize. The satisfaction of sweet reconciliation with God, of unabandoned delight in knowing him and experiencing God. The moments of knowing that we are partnering with him in bringing him glory here on earth as it is in heaven. Being formed in his likeness as the spirit develops the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the purpose. That's the need beyond the need. That's the finish line. Not a golden ticket. I also love the analogy that he gave last week of the solution to the coffee cup stain on the antique table. And if you weren't here for that, it was amazing. He was able to rub some toothpaste on the stain and the stain miraculously disappeared. And the idea was that just as that toothpaste removed the stain, so too does the blood of Jesus remove the stain of our sins before God. He washes us white as snow so that we are a new creation. But what I also noticed about what he said about applying that toothpaste was that he did so delicately but desperately. It took hard work. It took some humbling. He had to acknowledge he'd messed up. He damaged the table. He needed a solution and one that took some delicate but desperate work on his part to make the stain disappear. It is ours to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, delicately and desperately. But it is God's work that fulfills his good purpose in us. As one author put it, God works salvation in and we work salvation out. And isn't that the reality of all life-giving change? If we wanna grow a beautiful garden, 
we need to dig out the weeds. We need to battle with the thorns and the garden pests, and we need to turn the soil. We have to work long, hot hours, and then we wait. We wait for the mystery of life to start, and we finally see those shoots poking their heads out of the soil. Or what about all those in the Bible that Jesus healed? They pushed through thick crowds to touch his hem. Or they dug through the roof to be lowered down because there was no other way to get to Jesus. They worked with faith-filled awe and effort to get to Jesus. And then he met them at their place of greatest need. For those of you who don't know um, my personal story or part of my story, um, one of the ways that I have experienced what it looks like to work out my faith with fear and trembling happened 12 years ago. My husband David and I were living in India, in Delhi, and we got pregnant with our first child. At our 20-week ultrasound, we were told that our baby had a heart defect and that he would die soon after he was born if he even made it through the pregnancy. We had lots of questions, lots of decisions too. Should we abort him as the doctors recommended? Should we fly to South Africa or to America for a second opinion and a potential desperate attempt at a risky surgery? Would he survive the pregnancy? Would I survive the pregnancy? Would our marriage survive the emotional roller coaster and the frustrations and the endless, unclear decisions? Would this leave us financially ruined? But the worst of all my fears was would my faith survive this ordeal? You see, we were trusting in the God of miracles. We believe that God can do the impossible if he so chooses. And we were going to do our part in stepping out in faith for him to will and to act in order for him to fulfill his good purposes. But what if what we saw was our greatest need wasn't what he saw was our greatest need. The six months that followed were the greatest working out of my faith that I've ever experienced. There was fear. There was the knowledge of the all-powerful, miracle-working, kind Father God, and there was trembling. We did our work. We partnered with other believers around the world in prayer. We spoke of our faith courageously. I took my prenatal vitamins so that baby Daniel would grow, that he would develop as best as it depended on me. And we waited for God to act according to his good purposes. 
and he did. He didn't heal our baby. He lived 53 hours on earth before he went to heaven. But the work that God did to will and to act to fulfill his good purposes is unquestionable. Over the next six months, my love for God moved from my head to the deepest part of my core. His constant encouragements, his gifts of compassion and peace and truth, as I looked to his word, as it seeped into my soul in ways that nothing before or since has ever done. His steadfast love, his peace that passes all understanding. That season with him birthed not only a perfect baby boy who lived a full life in three days, but also birthed an unshakable faith and depth of love for God in me that even the power of death and the grave cannot take from me. He invites us to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as he works to will to bring about his good purposes. A few years later, we were living in Houston in America and after a two-year battle with infertility, God had graciously gifted us with twin daughters, Abigail and Zoe. And I remember driving home one afternoon with them in the back of the car and just thinking of what God had done in our lives. And I remember pleading with God to not allow our children to ever go through that kind of struggle that we had had with baby Daniel those few years back. And I can remember hearing God as clearly as I've ever heard him. Say, Sarah, don't ask me to limit their opportunity to experience life with me the way that you did in that season. As their mom, I want to protect them. I want to cocoon them. I want to ensure that they never know struggle or pain. But God wanted them to experience a life of working out their salvation with fear and with trembling. Lives that he wants to will and to act according to his good purposes. Surely, that should be my desire for my daughters, instead of a pain-free, cushioned life. As we continue further in the passage, we read in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Here, Paul tells us what manner that we should go about this working of our salvation. 
with God without bickering or grumbling, even cheerfully. In fact, the attitude that Paul commands us to have here is one that comes from a place of humility. If we believe that we have control, that we are entitled to have our every desire and our every perceived need met, if our goal is comfort and the unruffled, tremble-free life that we are our own masters of, then grumbling and arguing and bickering will be rife as they are the fruit of such an entitled attitude. However, when our hearts shift to a place of true humility like Jesus was, of true deference to God's will being done here on earth as it is in heaven, in my job, in my family, in my friendships, and in my areas of temptation, then we can truly be cheerfully hopeful and content and carriers of that peace that passes understanding that is so foreign in our control-obsessed world. Something that really challenged me about this verse is the contrast between those that are blameless and pure and those that are corrupt and warped. And the thing that differentiates them, it's not good deeds, and it's not theological qualifications, but it's rather that those who are blameless and pure are those that do everything without grumbling and arguing. Without a doubt, this is speaking to the Debbie Downers of society, those that look for an opportunity to always see something to complain about. And this is very much a clear command to nip that in the bud. I am sure we can all think of someone or sometimes when we ourselves have been that person. And it is really just miserable and it's life draining. And it's honestly the kind of attitude that I am certain hell is full of. We all agree that a hopeful, cheerful disposition is so much more appropriate. But this second part, without arguing, really challenged me lately. Over these last few months, I have found myself in multiple, sometimes pretty heated conversations with people about whether or not to get the vaccine. Don't get me wrong, I am the first person to agree that the idea of researching things, discussing them, weighing up the pros and cons are all great ways to go about making a decision. But it's at the point where these decisions become arguments, heated arguments, that leave people feeling emotionally bullied, relationally ostracized, that we need to recognize a line has been crossed. This generation is a wicked and corrupt generation. In fact, every generation is. But what I believe this generation is rooted in now is primarily fear. 
fear of death, fear of the unknown, fear of long-term side effects, fear of not being able to resume life as normal, fear of not being able to spend time with loved ones when and how we want. And the voice of truth that wants to speak into this generation is that of our Lord who says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. The reaction of the crooked and warped generation is one that wants to heighten our fears. It uses social media and false news and sometimes even outlight outright lies to win arguments, to intensify fear, to widen our divide. Whereas the voice of the pure and of the blameless is one of unity, of demonstrating perfect love in a way that doesn't divide, but rather unites and supports and understands and walks alongside those who are reacting in fear, even if we disagree with their decision. How is it that this vaccine, which was ultimately designed to stop the spread of the virus, to stop the division of families and friends, has now instead been used as a tool to divide people because of their arguing? Whether it's debates around the vaccine or around politics or around the pros and cons of private schooling, are we as followers of Christ defined first and foremost by being cheerful givers and receivers of unconditional grace and love and unity? And what will be the result of us working out our salvation in fear and trembling, submitting to God who is at work to bring about his good purposes with an attitude of love and unity. Then you will shine among them, according to verse 15. You will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. When we as brothers and sisters united in Christ under love live in this way, Paul tells us that we will shine among them like stars in the sky. Shine like stars. I don't know about you, but that sounds like an amazing good use of a lifetime. In closing, I love light. I love big windows. I love skylights. I love candles. I love Christmas lights. I love fairy lights. They are my absolute favorite. And when we lived in America, we lived in a neighborhood called the Heights. And every year, the Heights holds an annual celebration called Lights in the Heights. And I noticed that as we drove around the neighborhood during the day, the decorations looked intriguing, but quite meaningless. However, as soon as the power was flipped, as soon as the lights were connected to the source, what magical joy. 
people would drive from all around Houston to come and see the lights in the heights. But that was the key. They had to be plugged into the source to have their magic. We have to hold firmly to the word of life in order to be able to keep the perspective, to keep the anchoring, the life-giving source that not only knows peace and contentment as we work hard alongside God to bring about his good purposes, but we are then a joy, and we're an encouragement, and we're a source of hope to an often dark world. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you. I thank you for your, your faithfulness in working alongside of us this absolute journey of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. God, we thank you that your purposes are good. We thank you that you understand us even better than we understand ourselves. And that your heart for us is good. And God, as we trust you for that now, as we step out of this place, maybe once again, recommitting our lives to you and maybe letting go of some of that control. I pray that your peace would fill us, that we would experience your hope and your joy and that we could be your representatives in this world in a way that is cheerful, that is life-giving, that is hope-giving and that points others to you. We thank you for this life. We thank you that you desire to walk it with us. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.